up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's SupermanHomePage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. SupermanHomePage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. SupermanHomePage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to reach tall buildings in a single bound. This amazing stranger the planet Krypton. The Man of Steel. Who are you? A friend. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's, it's... Superman. 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 This looks like a job for Superman. Superman Forever Radio, the weekly podcast devoted to the Man of Steel. Welcome to Superman Forever Radio, episode 52. I'm your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder, and this time around, well, it's a lot like those old episodes of Full House, where they played clips and imparted lessons upon DJ or Stephanie or Michelle. Uh, being as which, this is the end of the year, holidays have got me wrapped up, I've decided to reuse some old material I have laying around, and I've opted to represent the Smallville Chronicles, a Superboy podcast. Now this was the show that I briefly made when Superman Forever ended, but it only lasted three short episodes. And it was hosted at a website called Dave's Amazing World of Superman, and when I decided to fold that, the episodes dropped off the face of the planet. So for the first time in over a year... The content is being released here to allow some prep time for future episodes, and really not to let it go to waste. It was good material covering the early days of Superboy and his first appearances. So what you'll hear are two promos for existing shows, Michael Bailey's views from the Longbox and Hey Kids Comics, and then the original promo for the Superboy podcast, and followed by the three episodes with some of the formalities trimmed off, like introductions and so on, before the episode wraps. So with that, I wish everyone a happy new year, and here is to 2013, the year of Superman. In the decade of the 1930s, even the great city of Cleveland, Ohio, was not spared of the ravages of the Great Depression. In a time of fear and confusion, a character emerged that would entertain and inspire millions of children and adults alike. He began not as flesh and blood, but as a simple line drawing. His comic book adventures thrilled millions around the world. The magic of radio gave to his name a breathless signature and sound. Then with television came a whole new generation to idolize his exploits. In the 70s, the world believed a man could fly. In the 80s, he was reborn in the comics and the 90s saw his death, rebirth, and marriage. In the 21st century, he returned to the big screen and saw his origin changed and retold on several occasions. Through the decades, he has gone by many names. The Man of Tomorrow, the Last Son of Krypton, the Man of Steel. His strength is incredible. His name is legendary. His battle is never ending. Faster than a speedy bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. My name is Michael Bailey, and I host an internet radio show called Views from the Longbox. Superman is my favorite character of all time, and in 2013, he is turning 75. Because of this, a large portion of the episodes this year will be about the Man of Steel, in a series I'm calling Superman, Superman at 75. 75. 
the celebration of a legend. I'm going to mark Superman's birthday in fine style by examining all aspects of the character's history, from the comics, to the movies, to the television series, and beyond, both alone and with the best and brightest of the podcasting world. It may not be every episode, but the bulk of views in 2013 will be all about the Man of Steel. He is the first and greatest superhero of them all, and he deserves no less. Superman at 75, the celebration of a legend. A series within a series, and the biggest birthday card a fan can give his favorite hero, only at Views from the Long Box. Views from the Long Box is a Fortress of Bailey Tude production. New episodes drop every other Tuesday over at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and for this series, over at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Hey, Kiss Comics! Hey, Michael! Yeah? We need to do a new promo. A new one? A new one! Why? Because we've moved! Moved. moved. We've moved to a new place. We still read comics. We do. We still talk about comics. Because you can't do a comic book podcast unless you read and talk about comics, because that's kind of stupid. But now, we have a new episode still available every Thursday, but at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Hey Kids Comics! So remember, Hey Kids Comics has moved to twotruefreaks.libson.com. Still, every Thursday. That'll do, won't it? In the city of Metropolis, Clark Kent appears to be a mild-mannered reporter for the Daily Planet. Unknown to the world, he's also Superman, fighting a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. But before there was Metropolis, there was Smallville. Before there was Lois Lane, there was Lana Lane. Before he was Superman, he had adventures as Superboy. Dave's Amazing World of Superman presents The Smallville Chronicles, a Superboy podcast. A weekly look at the adventures of Superman when he was a boy. Featuring an issue-by-issue look at the pages of Superboy from his appearances in Adventure Comics and his own title. Find it weekly at AmazingWorldOfSuperman.com One day, he will be the greatest hero in the world. But before that, Clark Kent will learn his powers, become a man, and defend his hometown of Smallville as Superboy. Dave's Amazing World of Superman presents The Smallville Chronicles, a Superboy podcast. First issue, More Fun Comics 101. Um, I was really glad John Wilson led me to this. Uh, This issue went on sale November 21st of 1944, so we are in the Golden Age. So it is a long way for Crypto, Legion, etc. But uh, this came out with a cover date of January slash February 1945 and featured a cover with a very plain yellow background and green arrow and speedy battling a giant knight in armor. Now it won't be long until Superboy dominates the covers, though. Now, the Superboy story in this issue was actually untitled at the time, but later became known as The Origin of Superboy, because it features, well, just that. Although Jerry Siegel had originally pitched the concept of Superboy and was told no twice, the popularity of child superheroes like Robin and, well, Speedy, ironically, um, really kind of convinced DC to give in, and they proceeded with the Superboy concept, but it just so happens that Jerry Siegel was off at war and DC didn't bother to get any input from him, which would lead to even more rifts between the two of them. However, Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics lists Jerry Siegel as the writer of this story, and I haven't found anything that contradicts that. And I haven't been able to clarify whether the story was done off of, you know, maybe one of the two pitches. I know the second pitch was a lot more detailed that Siegel made, but Joe Schuster did supply the art. Now, the story opens with an awesome title page of Superboy clearly drawn to be younger than you might normally think of him Uh, from, like, the Legion uh, era or Filmation series. Normally, he's in his early teens, late teens, somewhere in there. Um, Here, he's much younger, and he's leaping through a space background 
with Krypton's destruction occurring behind him and the rocket escaping. And a banner tells us that many fans have asked about Superman's origin. Was he a normal kid or a superboy? In this story, you will find out the answers, and you will look forward to the further adventures of the youth destined to become Superman. And then we jump right into the story, beginning on the outer reaches of infinite space, with a great planet that glowed like a green star in the lim limitless firmament, Krypton. Krypton was inhabited by what is described as human beings. I think the word humanoid would be more accurate since they are Kryptonians. Uh, the force of gravity on Krypton was far greater than that of Earth. As two Kryptonian men discuss on, on Earth, a Kryptonian could take an ordinary step and leap over the tallest building. In fact, one could almost defy gravity entirely. And because of this gravitational pull, the citizens were able to construct aircraft of extremely light weight, capable of tremendous speed, such as 900 miles per hour, as the story displays. But, as one Kryptonian laments, they should be able to build ships capable of reaching other planets. And now we meet Jor-El, perhaps the most advanced scientist of Krypton. His wife, Lara, finds him working in his lab on the model of his spaceship. She tells him that he will wear himself out at this pace, but Jor-El insists that there is no time. The lives of all Kryptonians may depend on the success of his experiments. Lara reminds Jor-El of his appointment with the Kryptonian Council, and that he is, well, running late. So Jor-El realizes that he must hurry because he must once again try to convince the Council that Krypton is doomed. So as Jor-El uh, you know, puts on his clothes, he rushes to the Council chambers, another quake shakes the planet, the sky darkens, everything is kind of foreboding. Um, not that it's a bad sign or anything, but Jor-El's unable to convince the Council that the planet is going to end, explode, and they need to build ships like his model and evacuate to Earth. Council just doesn't buy it, and they kind of laugh him out of the out of the chamber. But they're not going to be laughing long because it's already too late. As Jorel rushes back to his lab, the rumbling continues to worsen, and Jorel knows he's the end is here. So he pleads with his wife Lara to use the model to flee the planet, as there's just enough room for her and their unnamed baby. And Lara says that her place is by Jorel's side, but their son can have his chance at life. And the baby is placed into the rocket, headed for Earth as the planet quakes and finally explodes. Days later, the ship gently lands on Earth, where a passing motorist finds the baby inside and takes him to an orphanage. As the baby grew up a little, he astonished members of the orphanage staff by lifting heavy chairs and other furniture above his head. And later, the boy was adopted by a childless couple named Kent, given the name Clark, where he continued to develop powers, uh, like carrying large stacks of firewood, leaping over barns, outracing rabbits and deer. But as little Clark starts school, he realizes that others can't know how different he is. And he decides to hold himself in check and go along like all of the other kids. But one day, Clark and some other children happen across a motorist pinned under his own car after the jack fell. The other two boys try in vain to lift the vehicle, but of course, Clark is able to do it effortlessly. Uh, Clark makes up an excuse that something must have happened to give him momentary strength, but later in his room, Clark thinks that his powers give him a chance to do a lot of good. But he can't let people know that Clark Kent can do these things. So Clark secretly fashions a colorful red, blue, red and blue costume, and thus is born Superboy. That's a simple five-page story, but there's actually a lot of relevance to this story, to be honest. Um... For example, starting with page one, this is our first technical glance at Earth-1 uh, Krypton. Um, we've seen the, the Golden Age, and I'm going to get a little bit more into this with my notes on the second page, but this is really the first appearance of Earth-1 Krypton. Um, we see the Kryptonian men here kind of dressed like football players, and I know it's kind of coming off of that Flash Gordon model, but they do wear red and blue. It's another theme. It's kind of a... They contrast each other. The shirts are half and half, but there's a zigzag separating the colors. They're very Flash Gordon, very Buck Rogers, and they wear helmets that really do look like football helmets, but that was kind of the sci-fi style at the time. Now, page two, as I, as I teased, this is the first appearance of Jor-El and Lara. You're like, wait a minute. No, it isn't. Yes, this is the first comic book appearance of Jor-El with the E-L and Lara. Um, you saw him in the strips with Jor-El, with the single L. So essentially, I mean, to put it in the multiverse setting, this is Earth-1. This is 
the main Earth. Earth 2 would be the you know, primary golden age. So this is actually the first appearance of the, of the Earth 1, Jor-El, and Lara, the ones that will become, um, well, canon. And the strips had a little bit of this. Um, George Lothar's Adventures of Superman nodded to it, but this is the first official appearance of Jor-El. I have checked, John Wilson and I double-checked, that really, in terms of the origin, it's not revisited for a little while um, with this in canon. So this is relevant. This is hugely relevant. Because really, in a lot of ways, this is the official origin of the Earth-1 Superman. Although, things would be retconned, of course. So, moving on to the third page, uh, speaking of retcons. We see a yellow rocket for Kellel, as opposed to the normal red and blue that we're used to. Normally, it's a blue body with red fins and a red tip. Um, here, it's, it's yellow. And then, of course, the motorist leaves the ship behind later down the road. They're going to talk about how they made the costume, even though it's not really specified here. And the ship is going to become relevant. So retcons upon retcons get used to retcons. Because we're moving from, uh, well, we're still in the Golden Age for a while. But we'll be hitting the Silver Age before too long at this rate. Um, I do want to note that Kal-El is not named in this. He is not named. Even though he appears, they don't use the name Kal-El. They just call him our son, the baby, etc. Although we as Superman fans know that Kal-El's Kryptonian name is Kal-El. And I was kind of bothered by the fact that the rocket made it to Earth days later. Even at the speeds that they're describing, uh, just not going to happen. I mean, I've always placed a sort of fanboy retcon in my own head that there was some sort of wormhole involved or jump gate or something. But it's not going to take days to get from Krypton to Earth. It's just not. And that's just me being nitpicky. Um, fourth page, Clark is adopted not as a baby. In fact, the Kents don't even find him. It's another motorist, which is kind of sticking with the Golden Age version. Um, we're not veering too far off of what we would have seen in the strips or in Superman number one. Um, but he's a toddler, which is kind of fascinating because he's had time to develop. Um, normally, the standard origin that we know now is that Jonathan and Martha found Clark at the crash site. Not so at the beginning. And also, when Clark starts school, he's not wearing glasses, as John M. Wilson pointed out. In fact, the glasses do not appear in this story at all. Um, we'll see. We'll, we'll kind of mark that as a relevant point. And really, Superboy, by the end of the story, he's only about seven or eight. As I mentioned, he, you know, he was drawn very, very young at the, at the front panel there. And he really is a Superboy and not a super teen. Because a lot of the stories we're going to be seeing from this more fun comics and the early adventure comics... Which, to be honest, after seven issues of more fun comics, the entire part and parcel of the, of the program here, all the backup stories, they're all going to basically trade places with adventure comics. So more fun be, kind of becomes the more humor, humor-centered book. Adventure becomes the more superhero-centered book. Um, that's, after, that's after issue 107, and which was where I was going to pick up was at the beginning of that. But yeah, no glasses here. He's much younger. These stories aren't... Uh, as silver agey as what you might be used to. These are very golden age, very Hogan's Alley is what I think of without, you know, the horrid, horrid racial stereotypes, but they're, they're fun. They're, they're geared towards children and comics. I mean, of course they were all marketed towards children, but these were geared towards slightly younger children to kind of put them in the pilot seat, a very Spider-Man idea when you think about it, because one of the big draws for Spider-Man was that anybody could be under the costume. He is a teenager. And this would be geared more towards kids about Clark's age, seven or eight, somewhere in there, who want to imagine themselves as Superman, but maybe kind of give them a little bit of a segue. Um, as I mentioned, on page five, there's no details on where the costume came from, just that he formed it. He made it from something. Now, the curiosity is the color theme, because the Kryptonians wore red and blue, um, in the text, it doesn't point out that the costume also has yellow accents here and there. And of course, the costume is primarily red and blue, but yellow is an aspect of that, especially in the symbol itself, which is widely recognized internationally. So it's a definitely important color to the scheme, but the blue and red flowed from the Kryptonians, what we see in the early pages. But there's no rocket for Clark to reference. Uh, Clark was very much an infant, 
So I wonder if the implication, whether intentional or unintentional, is that from these stored memories as an infant, that the colors were relevant, that they were important. And of course, that's just kind of here, here or there, just an interesting thought. But we will get into retcons on where the costume came from down the road. Um, we're still a long way from crypto, by the way. I just want to be clear on that. Crypto does appear way down the line. Um, we're still in the golden age. He doesn't appear until eh, mid, early mid silver age. So long way for crypto in the teen years, but I do want you to enjoy these stories. They are geared towards children. Um, the fun factor is kind of what I'm looking for with these stories. Uh, we're going to build upon these, of course, as we progress towards our journey. Um, the, the Kents actually appear for one panel and one panel only. They will be making small cameos, but of course down the road they're going to become a bigger part of the tapestry. Lana Ling did not appear. No Pete Ross, um, nothing of that sort. So as I mentioned, I mean, the story is more whimsy than adventure. It's a very brief story, very concise, very here's what happens. And, uh, you know, I, I, I enjoyed it, to be honest, especially when I realized the relevance. It wasn't planned as part of this show initially. Uh, so I'm very thankful for Johnny Wilson for pointing me back to this because really we have the roots of the Earth One Superman in this story. It's a very, very relevant story. So I'm, I'm incredibly grateful that we got a chance to cover it. Now, as far as the, the other features in this book, the book starts out with a Green Arrow story called Formula for Doom, written by Joe Samachson, and Maurice, uh, art, art was done by Maurice Del Burgio, um, in which Green Arrow tries to track down the stolen formula of a scientist friend, which was stolen by one Onions Malloy. Green Arrow and Speedy, which are pretty much a perfect analog for Batman and Robin at this point. They're really clones. Obviously, both of them would go on to progress into their own characters, but right now, pretty much exactly Batman and Robin with an Arrow theme. Um, but they are captured, released, blinded, thrown in the water. Um, finally, they get their man. I mean, it's just... The, the, the pacing on this story was off. Because they go after them, and as I mentioned, I mean, they just keep getting captured and released. Um, next up was Aquaman, Orphans of the Sea, uh, written by Joe Samichens. Uh, I'm going to have trouble saying this. I'm just going to be honest with you. Zo Joe Samichson, and with art by Louise Kazanyuv. And this story was an odd one. Uh, a former aquarium worker adopts some of the large fish, including an octopus, uh, puffer fish, and kind of puts him in the sea near his retirement home, his retirement house. And he has to fend off some hunters who are harassing the the sea creatures, as well as trying to get him, you know, they actually assault him at one point. So Aquaman helps him with this and helps the fish reacquaint themselves with sea life. And then after the Superboy story, there is a Johnny Quick story called An Investment in Happiness, which I really enjoyed. It was written by Don Cameron with art by Morgan Mort Maskin. Um, Johnny Quick helps a dying, miserable rich man change his ways so by giving away his money for him to people that he worked over, only to find out that the man is not dying. Well, that is until his crooked nephew, who stands to inherit the man's money, tries to get him killed off and uh, try to get his inheritance. Luckily, Johnny saves the man, who suddenly is regretting giving away the money, but finds out for the first time in his life that because of that, he has friends for the first time. Oh, actually, very cute Golden Age story. Very, very cute. And finally, the Spectre, another Jerry Siegel creation, by the way, helps a would-be detective clear his name and escape from a safe that he got himself locked in. In the oddly humorous tale, The Unsafe Safe, with by Bernard Bailey. Now, the Spectre was kind of the biggest surprise of all, because my perception of the Spectre has always been that he's a dark character. He's supernatural, etc., etc., no, he was actually kind of fun in this. I quite enjoyed that. Uh, pleasant surprise. Uh, next time around, I, I do plan on getting a little bit more into some of the backup features, uh, kind of giving you some backgrounds on the characters, kind of set us up going forward. To give you a, a bit of a context of when this book was coming out, DC had eight monthly magazines, which were action comics, adventure comics, which we're going to be spending some time in, all-American comics, detective comics, Flash Comics, More Fun Comics, which is obviously this book, and Sensation Comics and Star Spangled Comics. So this was one of the monthly books, which meant, well, it sold. 
Um, this uh, issue was 48 pages. And when you think about the fact that the entire thing cost a whopping 10 cents compared to today's prices, phenomenal. Um, they had six bi-monthly magazines, All Flash, All Star Comics, Batman, which is curious, Mutton Jeff, Superman, and Wonder Woman. So the self-titled comics, I mean, they were at this time DC specific, well, obviously comics in general were more into the anthology because kids could relate to one or more characters and they're going to get hooked on others. Very, very good marketing when you think about it. Um, perhaps the marketers of today could learn a few things. Hmm. In addition, there were eight quarterly magazines. All funny comics, boy commandos, comic cavalcade, funny stuff, Green Lantern, which would be Alan Scott Green Lantern, leading comics in world's finest, and then picture stories from the Bible. So quite a bit of diversity in there. I just wanted to kind of let you know what was being published at the time. Um, and it's interesting because the self-titled comics were bi-monthly, but of course Superman had his anthology in, in Batman or in, in super in action and Batman had detective. And then it's funny that the flash flash comics was monthly. I didn't realize that flash was considered that popular of a character to merit a monthly series. And of course, green arrow and speedy were kind of home here. He spent a lot of time in anthologies for a while. Aquaman did the same. I think Grant Morrison made the point that because they were in these anthologies, which was kind of pinned down by Superboy in some cases or other, you know, mainstay characters, Aquaman and green arrow actually managed to survive. They could have been another forgotten golden age hero. So thanks to them uh, for putting them in an anthology. I mean, I think more anthologies could be coming out today. Uh, we covered Superboy's origin in his first appearance from More Fun Comics number 101. We also talked a little bit about the other features in More Fun Comics, many of which will follow Superboy into Adventure Comics in just a few episodes. Now, because my initial starting point was originally Adventure Comics, uh, I kind of had a small plan for the first episode, um, which got changed when I decided to go back to the actual beginning of More Fun Comics at John Wilson's suggestions. Uh, very great suggestion, by the way, John. Uh, so the first episode was kind of well, a little bit seat of my pants, more than I'd like. Uh, so I'm kind of going back and covering some of those bases that I originally wanted to cover. Uh, I'm going for a kind of a happy medium in terms of the backup stories. I'm going to do uh, a little bit of commentary here and there when it's a very relevant story. Otherwise, just a very... Here it is. This is what happened. Um, so, But I do want to talk about some of the other characters that are going to be appearing because some of them are important, uh, kind of lending itself to that nostalgic feel. So I want to do an overview of the characters, which is a little bit backwards. It should have been in the first episode. So I'm going to start with Green Arrow. And a lot of comic fans, yes, I know you're going to know some of this, maybe all of this, but I'm trying to be all-inclusive. Now, Green Arrow was created by su uh, future Superman editor Mort Weisinger and George Papp. He first appeared in More Fun Comics number 73, 27 issues before we began last time. Basically, Mort made Batman with a Robin Hood theme. Uh, Green Arrow is Oliver Queen, a millionaire playboy who was shoved off of a boat by one of his own employees. Prior to this, he was basically a selfish jerk. He was everything that Bruce Wayne pretended to be. Now, Oliver admired Robin Hood as a kid and had developed a skill for archery, so after he was shoved off the boat, he crafted a makeshift bow and arrow so he could hunt some food. Now, while on the island, he found a set of drug smugglers who had been killing natives left and right. And, of course, he brought them to justice. So when he returned to civilization, uh, he had this thrill of the hunt in him. So he wanted to change his ways as well. So he built an arrow car, arrow plane, even an arrow signal. And added one teen sidekick in the form of future junkie Roy Harper, a.k.a. Speedy. And you have a bow and arrow wielding Batman. Now, obviously, the character would evolve beyond that in later years. But with what we're looking at in the Golden Age currently, basically Batman with a bow and arrow. Uh, Johnny Quick is another character that appears regularly. Uh, Johnny Quick is actually Johnny Chambers, an orphan raised by Professor Ezra Gill, who had discovered a papyrus with an ancient formula, which I'm not even going to try to say, but it involves 3x2, 9yz, 4a, if anybody knows the proper formula, I'm not good at algebra, so knock yourself out. Uh, the formula, when spoken aloud, grants the person the power of speed. 
So, as it was the custom in the Golden Age, Johnny puts together a costume, in his case, red and yellow, and fought crime while maintaining a secret identity as a newsreel photographer. Uh, Johnny was also created by Mort Weisinger and first appeared in More Fun Comics 71. Johnny hangs out with his comic relief sidekick, Tubby Watts, and gets in adventures. That's pretty much that in a nutshell. Uh, Aquaman is argu- arguably the best, well, well the most well-known of these characters. Um, he is considered one of the DC Comics' big seven. Um, you have the main trinity, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. Now, he's in the slightly lower tier. That doesn't mean he's a lesser character, but you have the trinity, and then you have the other four. Uh, Aquaman himself, Green Lantern, Flash, and Martian Manhunter. So he's one of the big guns in the DCU. Uh, well, kind of. <laughs> Aquaman was apparently also created by Mort Weisinger, which I did not know, along with Paul Norris, and he first appeared in More Fun Comics number 73, along with Green Arrow. So that was kind of an important issue. Now, Aquaman's main gig is being able to breathe underwater and psychically talk to sea life. In the Golden Age, he actually just talked to them. It's been retconned quite a bit. He's also the butt of many, many jokes. And I'm going to be honest, I'm guilty of more than my, my fair share. In Aquaman's Golden Age origin, he was taught how to survive underwater by his sea explorer father, who had discovered an underwater city that was assumed to be Atlantis. Now, the origin is going to be retconned over and over again. But for now, it's really... It's, Aquaman is very straightforward. He's a strong, swift man who could breathe underwater and communicate with fish. The Spectre, who actually isn't in this week's episode issue, but he is a feature that he did appear last issue. He was also created by Jerry Siegel. So he's somewhat related to Superboy. Uh, he's no funny man, but hey... Uh, the Spectre is actually a murdered cop named Jim Corrigan, who was denied entry into the afterlife, and then he was sent back to Earth to bring vengeance to the evil of the world. Kind of like Ghost Rider before Ghost Rider ever happened. In fact, Ghost Rider is pretty much a knockoff of the Spectre. That's right, I said it. Uh, the Spectre made his first appearance in More Fun Comics issue 52, and a feature that we'll be seeing for a few more issues at least is Dover and Clover. They're going to stay really with More Fun as far as I know. But they're an inept pair of twins who were detectives. Uh, the pair made their debut in More Fun Comics 94. They were created by Harry Boltonoff. It's really more of a straightforward comic strip about these two twins getting in wackiness. Uh, so that's kind of the overview of some of our recurring characters and the other features. As the stories come up, as there's relevant bits, I'll definitely point them out. But otherwise, it's just going to be a very basic look at what happened. Now, for now, I'm going to play an awesome promo, something I'm very excited about. And then we're going to come back and tear into Superboy's first a real adventure. Stay with me. In 1992, the greatest hero the world has ever known died defending his city from a force of nature. That force of nature had a name. Doomsday. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast is a weekly internet radio program presented by the Superman homepage in association with the Superman Podcast Network. Every week, hosts Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor examine the comic book adventures of Superman from Man of Steel number one in 1986 to Adventures of Superman number 649 in 2006. Now they begin their coverage of the epic Death and Return of Superman trilogy with the first chapter of that story, Doomsday. From the first round to the ultimate sacrifice, Mike and Jeff will go through Doomsday in detail with the occasional special guest and a few surprises as well. Doomsday comes to From Crisis to Crisis beginning December 2011 at both www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com and www.supermanhomepage.com.
And this week we're looking at More Fun Comics number 102, released on January 23rd, 1945, with a March-April 1945 cover date. Uh, Jack Schiff is the issue's editor, and the cover features Clover and Dover painting a flagpole from the bottom up and trapping themselves at the top. It was done by Harry Henry pardon me, Boltonoff. Uh, the Superboy adventure was entitled The Cruise of the Jolly Roger, and it was written by Don Cameron with Joe Schuster on pencils and Ira Yarbrough on inks. And I hope you're all prepared to die from cuteness. Uh, two bank robbers, Lefty and Duke, have escaped from jail and are on the run when they hit a roadblock, the river. It's too deep to wade across, and the torrents seem pretty strong, so the guys decide to swipe a boat. And luckily, they spot a rickety little thing, a little raft with a cabin on it, floating down the river, flying the skull and crossbones of the Jolly Roger. On that boat is Captain Clark Kent, sans glasses, and his ragtag crew of adult but or pardon me, of childhood buddies. Well, I'm getting things all confused. Childhood buddies Ted, Squint, and the ironically named Tiny. The boys are playing pirates when Lefty and Duke flag the ship down. Clark Clark recognizes the two immediately as robbers who have escaped from jail. And the boys try to stave off the guys as they try to board the ship. But Duke shoots Clark, who goes overboard into the river. And Lefty and Duke make it clear that if anybody asks if the boys are have seen them, they have not. So basically they take them hostage and the robbers retire to the cabin. And you know what? The cops do call out to the boys who comply with their hostage takers' wishes. But the kids know they have to do something. Uh, these guys killed Clark Kent the swellest kid in town. Not so, of course, and we flash back to Clark getting shot. He's Superboy. The bullet didn't hurt him. It didn't do anything. But for appearances, Clark fell into the river and changed into Superboy. And he's been following the raft since, holding his breath. And Superboy pops up out of the water and tells Tiny that Clark's okay, and he has the situation on lock. Don't panic, no matter what happens. Superboy starts taking the raft for a ride into the rougher parts of the river, speeding up against rocks and strong currents. And Duke and Lefty notice this and start yelling at the other boys, who play coy. How can they be doing this? The waters start to calm, much to the robber's relief, but the relief is short-lived because a tall waterfall is coming up. Superboy removes his friends from the raft as the robbers try to shoot him out of the sky, which of course has no effect on the boy of steel. He's bulletproof. It's in the tagline, kids. With, with his friends secure on the bank, Superboy returns to the raft. He can't just let the robbers go over the waterfall. That'd destroy the raft. I kid you not, that's in the book. Uh, so he lifts it into the air, and just as they're about to go over the, the edge. So Superboy harmlessly dunks them into the river, and then delivers the dripping wet criminals to a nearby police officer, who tells Superboy that he thought the Boy of Steel was imaginary, but now he knows better. Superboy repairs the raft and returns it to Ted, Squint, and Tiny, who rechristen the boat the good ship Superboy, and they hit the river under the red, blue, and yellow colors of their hero. Now, although Superboy declined to join the crew, Clark is found, and the boys go back to their river adventures, sans robbers. Anybody in a diabetic coma yet? It's adorable. Now, bear in mind, I do want to clarify that my commentary on the cuteness of this story should not be confused with criticisms. I like that these early stories are more kid-friendly and fun. It's charming. It gives me a warm feeling when I'm done, to be honest. Uh, but that aspect, there is an aspect that really, it makes this story more than a little disturbing when you put some thought into it. Think about this. Two hardened criminals are terrorizing young boys, and they shoot one of them. It's kind of twisted, because neither Lefty nor Duke have any idea that Clark is Superboy, obviously. So for all they know, they were just callously killing him. That is twisted people. Very twisted. Now, it makes me think of the older Grimm's fairy tales. Uh, the Little Mermaid is a really great example. I bet you love that Disney version. I bet you love it. And she ends up with the Eric in the end. Evil is defeated. No. Try again. In the end of the original, she fails. She becomes Seafoam. And uh, Cinderella's sisters, they ended up killing themselves over the whole affair. Uh, it's bad. It's, it's completely non-child-friendly things that are happening in Grimm's fairy tales all the time. Now, Uncle Walt may have made some, everything squeaky clean and happy in his versions, but still, it's disturbing stuff, and it's right below the surface, which is something that happens all the time in the Golden Age. 
Uh, these kids in the Superboy story are being held hostage at gunpoint. Now, on the lighter side of things, I mean, this is Superboy's first actual adventure. So let's bring it back to the comic book medium. Yes, this is happening underneath it, but we still have the colorful hero. The last episode was all Clark. Uh, Say for the final panel, we, we saw him developing. So now we actually get Superboy flying and fighting criminals. Kind of. Uh, in this story, he's really just scaring them, which is hilarious. It's creative because he's not punching the bad guys. He's just playfully messing with their minds. He could have easily just snatched them up, taken them to the cops, and that would have been it. But there's no fun in that. And of course, he's protecting his friends. He's giving them a show as well. And of course, he's protecting his friends. That's, that's what Superman does. Why wouldn't Superboy do that? Now, this story actually really, I mean, more than Grimm's fairy tales, there is that sort of disturbing allegory I wanted to point out, but that actually invoked more of a Mark Twain feel for me, which psychs me out. Uh, you have the river, some rascally kids, some adventure. I will take that any day. Now, remember, comics are supposed to be fun. They're supposed to be entertaining, entertaining, pardon me. And this true story really underscores that really, really well. And part of the reason I wanted to cover some of these older Superboy stories. We aren't weighed down with a lot of backstory. There's not, well, there is no real continuity. Uh, We got the origin last week in more fun comics. Now we're going to hit the ground running. There's not a lot of semantics to the story. It's very straightforward. And Don Cameron took Siegel's original idea. Since I, you know, I still support the theory that last, the origin was done by, based off of Siegel's pitch for Superboy. Uh, Don Cameron really just took the idea and ran with it. And we might as well, while we're in here, we might want to get to know Don Cameron a little bit. We're going to be spending some time with him in the future. And he actually ends up writing uh, quite a few Superboy stories coming up. Uh, Several of the ones we're going to be looking at for the next several episodes. So Now Cameron came into the the DC stable with uh, the Les Sparks radio amateur strips uh, that are backups in Flash comics. He was the writer and the artist on that, so he's a double talent. And he went on to write several early Batman stories. He was an artist on picture stories from the Bible. And he actually created the character of Liberty Bell over in Boy Commandos. Now, interestingly enough, Johnny Quick, who appears in this book and who he will be writing off and on, would eventually marry Liberty Bell. And that's more in the retcon Earth 2, which is apparently what we are working off. I thought this would be Earth 1, but... Okay, multiverse gets tricky. Let's not even go down that, because it's supposed to be a a shorter podcast. This is a mini-podcast. I could do full hours and hours on the multiverse. And I might someday. But, uh... So, Cameron, he was very prolific, honestly. Looking at his rap sheet here, he's a writing, drawing, he's in action comics, star-spangled comics. He finally lands here in more fun comics, eventually adventure comics, and Superboy. And, of course, we know the issue's artist. Joe Schuster, who co-created Superman with Jerry Siegel. At least we should know him. So there are creators. Now, I want to get back to the story here. I don't have any pa- a lot of page-by-page notes. I mean, it's a seven-page story. Kind of hard to do that. I'd rather just kind of look at the snapshot in the whole. Uh, I do have one nitpicky note as far as page-by-page. Page. Um, you know, and this is generally, I just want to say I enjoyed the story. Uh, however, there, even with the dark subtext, I, I enjoyed it. Now, on page 7 of the story, Superboy's cape disappears for one panel. Just poof, gone. And I think it was more of a result of a miscolor, because I can see some very heavy motion lines where the cape should have been. So, probably an easy miscolor, probably corrected later down the road in reprints. Now, overall, to put all of my rambling together in one cohesive final thought, which is kind of the goal, this is a fun story. Even though... You know, even if superheroes weren't involved and it could have been terrifying, I enjoyed the heck out of it. It was so much fun. Uh, Don Cameron uh, will be a longtime Superboy writer, makes his debut here. This is Superboy's first real adventure, and we get introduced to Superboy's pals who will recur, who will recur to some varying extent, especially Tiny next issue. And the bad guys are thwarted without a lot of extra stuff. It's very straightforward, very streamlined. So thumbs up for me for some great Golden Age goodness from Cameron and Schuster. Now, as far as the other features in the book, Green Arrow leads off the book as usual. Uh, He was, at this point, the strongest character in the book, the most well-known, which is odd to think about now. Uh, There's a story by Joe Samuelson and Maurice Del Burgo, 
in which he and Speedy rescued the lovely Princess Xenia from a psychotic Count Carl who was trying to force her to make a movie with him in The Unattainable Princess. Now, Superboy follows that Green Arrow story. I want to note that because it means Superboy is moving up in the ranks of the anthology. So he bumped the former second story character, Aquaman. Awkward. So already Superboy's pretty popular, which is kind of to be expected since Superman was hugely popular. And still is, really. So after the Superboy story is a Johnny Quick tale written by Mort Meskin, in which robbers use trained bees and birds to pilfer. It is titled The Bird and Bee Bandits. Kind of puts a lead right up front. Dover and Clover dabble in paint criminals in a riddle in Baffling Black by Henry Boltonoff. And Aquaman gives us a very clear description of the atoms inside the metal of chains as he is captured in Silent Sounds by Joe Samuelson and Louis Kazanov. Now this that I'm referring to, it's a great set of, of, uh, ca- of panels, not captions, that involves cartoon atoms showing how they line up, and when they're disturbed, they, do, they break. They're dissipated when Aquaman vibrates the chain. It's perhaps one of the best science displays I have ever seen in a Golden Age anthology comic story featuring an undersea-themed hero. So, there is that. And that is this. This episode of Smallville Chronicles is wrapped up. Uh, so join me next time, on which will be Thursday, Thanksgiving Day. So if you're driving around, i got a little extra treat for you that day. Um, next time, Superboy and his pals meet a caveman, sort of. Johnny Quick goes fishing and Aquaman supports education. Luckily, those two aren't related. So why don't we jump into the issue, which is More Fun Comics number 103, that went on sale approximately March 22nd, 1945, with a May-June 1945 cover date. Now, for a whopping 10 cents, you got 48 pages of swell comic book action, which was edited by Jack Schiff. Now, the cover by Harry Boltonoff features Dover and Clover, those idiot detectives, hanging from a wooden fence by arrows. Green Arrow tells Speedy that this is what they get for taking over Green Arrow's book. Your book, they ask. Superboy is in these pages, too. And right there is where you know that Superboy is becoming a bit of a phenomenon, but obviously the star of this book. That and the blurb up in the in the upper right-hand corner asking, what was Superman like when he was a boy? Clearly, uh, Superman... Superman sells. That's why his trade dress is there. Superman sells and monkeys sell. Superman and monkeys can make or break a book. So you put a Superman and a monkey on a book, you have gold. So Titano should have sold a lot of books. But I digress. The Superboy story we're looking at is entitled A Modern Caveman. It was written by Don Cameron, penciled by D. Joe Schuster, and inked by Marvin Stein. Not Martin Stein. He's not combining with Ronnie Raymond to form Firestorm. Marvin Stein. Now, the title panel shows Superboy with two criminals tucked under his arm, rushing at a tall, silver-haired, bearded caveman. Caveman, you say? I suddenly had an Encino Man flashback, sorry. Uh, Anyway, the caveman is wielding a club at three younger boys, one of which looks to be wearing the red and yellow of Billy Batson. Except it's obviously not Billy. Sadly, though I'd love to make up a grand story about how he actually made his first appearance here, it's just a color choice. And it's an odd one, uh, primarily because the boy we're looking at doesn't even appear in the story, as we're going to find out. Now we have a blurb here, and the blurb itself reads, If you could journey two million years backward through time to the age when mankind first appeared on the Earth, you would doubtless experience pretty much the same kind of thrill that awaits young Clark Kent and his school chums in these pages. And you'd be lucky to have Superboy along to safeguard you from the primitive perils. And there's this weird adventure that begins with the astounding discovery of a modern caveman. And the story opens to a young Clark and two of his pals studying while camping in a pup tent on a stormy day, which is never a wise idea, of course. One of these boys is Tiny from last issue, and the other one has no name. He isn't identified at all as Squint or anybody that we've seen so far. And see, in my understanding, I thought we were going to see a few of these characters over and over again, but they don't recur as much as I thought, obviously. 
Now, since this kid doesn't have a name, but we have to kind of tell the story, we're going to call him Billy for synopsis purposes. But let me be clear, he is never named. Now, Tiny thinks that being in a pup tent on a nasty stormy day beats studying at home, but Billy admits the ability to raid the icebox. Now, here's another inaccuracy. What I've just said is completely inaccurate. It should have actually been Tiny saying this, but because of clearly bad placement of speech balloons, Tiny wants to raid the icebox and Billy is enjoying the rain. They are literally switched in the panel. I don't know if this happens in the reprints. I'll have to double check that. But it is here, and it's a clear screw-up, as Billy suggests that they pretend that they're cavemen, like the ones they're reading about. And he addresses Tiny by name. And Tiny says that cavemen lived off of bark, roots, and berries, and that must have been awful. Clark, still without glasses, but sporting the red sweater vest and or red sweater and white dress shirt underneath, asks Tiny if he thinks about anything but his stomach. Tiny then adds that the caveman had it all right. They had caves to live in, skins to wear, lots of time for amusement. And Tiny adds that a cave would stand up to lightning bolt better than most houses. And as soon as Tiny mentions lightning, a bolt strikes a dead tree nearby, splitting it and bringing down bringing down the tree on the tent. The boys make a narrow escape into the rain. Two seconds later, and they wouldn't have made it out, which wouldn't have bothered Clark too much, but the others might be a little, well, they might be apt to complain. And Clark mentions that a cave would have held up better than that tent. And sure enough, just as the mention of the cave was made, one appears nearby. So they talk about lightning, lightning strikes. They talk about a cave, and a cave appears, which is uncovered by the fallen tree hit by the lightning. Guess what is in front of the cave which the boys have just mentioned? That's right, a caveman. Standing at the mouth of the cave, wearing a tattered pelt, and wielding a huge billy club. The boys watch as the caveman eats some bark off of the fallen tree, and they keep themselves hidden, wishing Superboy was there, as the caveman wanders away. Clark thinks to himself that Superboy is on hand if there is trouble, but for all they know, the caveman is just a harmless hermit. And with the caveman gone, Clark decides that this is a good chance to look inside the cave and see how a caveman actually lives. And in the cave, the boys spot a large hole in the roof for ventilation and a large hole in the floor that might go clear to China. And while the boys are in the cave, two crooks, and I know they're crooks because they're wearing suits and guns, two crooks named Roscoe and Slappy show up and find the boys in the cave and they demand to know where the caveman went, pulling guns on the boys pointing the guns at them as well. Which is normally what you would do with a gun, I guess. Sometimes I'm an idiot. Well, Billy and and then Tiny panic, but Clark realizes that it's time to bring Superboy into the picture. So he accidentally falls into the deep hole in the floor, which allows him to switch out of his civilian clothes and fly into action as the Boy of Steel. Now, to hide his identity, because if he came back up the hole he just went down, obviously the secret's spoiled, Clark burrows through the earth, until he comes out the other, in, in another location, right by where the caveman is standing, which startles the caveman who hits Clark over the head with the club. And as he hits Superboy, he says, Take that! Which means the caveman speaks English, which is our first indication that things are a little bit off. So Superboy picks the caveman up and flies him to a quiet spot where they can talk. And they talk about their feelings. And No, actually, the caveman actually turns out to be Professor Henry Macon, who was kidnapped from his bed, hence the ripped sheet for clothes. So I guess Professor Macon sleeps in the nude. Good to know. Uh, The crooks wanted Macon to share a formula he invented for an engine that takes its fuel right out of the air. Which is pretty interesting, but you're never going to see any more of that concept again. So basically, Macon's been trapped in the cave for a week with no food, which is why he chewed on the bark after getting out of the cave, but doesn't explain where the club came from. Superboy decides to let Macon get even with Roscoe and Slappy, and flies to the cave with Macon under his arms. Roscoe and Slappy are about to put Tiny and Billy on ice, when Superboy leaps in through the roof and punches one of the crooks and crushes his gun while Tiny actually tackles the other. Go Tiny! And the crooks are tempted to run, but big, imposing Professor Macon is at the mouth of the cave with the club in hand. Now, rather than get beaten, Slappy and Roscoe decide that they will confess. They were going to sell the formula to a big company for a million dollars. So Superboy takes the crooks to jail as Tiny and Billy give the professor their sack lunches 
and Clark climbs out of the hole in safe condition. Tiny thinks it's a bit odd that Clark didn't rip his clothes or get any bruises when he fell. Somebody might think that Clark is as tough as Superboy. And as the story wraps, Clark winks to the reader, and we are done. Not... That's a, not as good a story, honestly. I'll be right out of the gate with you. I didn't think it was as good a story as The Cruise of the Jolly Roger. And actually, this one was a bit goofy in all the wrong ways. So let's look a little bit closer. Starting on page two, panel one, Clark asks Tiny if he can think of anything other than his stomach. How does Clark know that Tiny doesn't just go home and get abused by his parents or grandparents? Because I have another theory. I mean, Tiny eats because that's his escape. I, and I picture just I picture him with a peanut butter and jelly sandwich under his bed sheets, crying to himself, sobbing with each bite. <laughs> and that's terrible to say, but what I'm trying to say is Clark is being a bit insensitive. He doesn't know what happens behind closed doors, and I'm sure Tiny's not happy with himself. He's a huskier kid, but he's not, you know, rotund. So I think Clark's a little bit out of line there. But then again, Tiny gives a hint of something on page two and panel two when he points out that the cave would stand up to lightning better than a house, which is kind of an odd comment, kind of out of nowhere. I understand it's storming, but I wonder if Tiny's house burned down. Now, let's, let, me, let me throw this theory out. Tiny's parents are killed in a house fire that when it gets struck by lightning, or maybe Tiny inadvertently sets it as a young child, and he has to watch him burn alive, so he's traumatized. So this leads to many, many emotional scars that Tiny copes with by overeating. And since psychiatry at the time was completely lacking in any empathy or sensitivity, or pretty much, you know, pretty much society as a whole, nobody noticed that he was basically killing himself with food. And this particular incident was the last straw on his weak little heart, and Tiny passes away in his sleep between the panels, between this issue and next. It must be that, he, 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 because Tiny never recurs. This is the last time we see Tiny. Which is kind of a shame, because I was really growing to like the lad. Now, this leaves us with a gaping question in mind. This is odd, but did Tiny have latent metahuman powers? Because he talks about lightning and it strikes. Talks about caves and it appears. Cavemen appears. And so, pretty consistently, he mentions something, it appears. And I actually ended up starting to wonder, in my first read-through, if Tiny maybe had wishing abilities. Uh, maybe verbal magic-based powers like Zatanna. And I kind of wish he did, because that surely would have been more fun than this particular story. And I'm sorry, some of the magic was just gone here. A lot of these stories are fantastic, I love them to death, but this one, not so much. It's not that this was a completely horrible story, obviously, it just lacked some of the charm I've grown to expect. And I would have loved to see Tiny wishing for burgers, poof, they appear, but things get out of control and Superboy ends up fighting, well, something. And that would have also been nice. The crooks in this round were real pushovers. In the last issue, uh, we at least had Superboy messing with the crooks' minds by pushing the raft through the parts of the river to the waterfall. Here he shows up, and they surrender. And here's the thing that really bugs me. They don't surrender to Superboy, but to a scientist, their kidnapped victim. Now, there were some good points. Superboy thinks that the caveman may be a simple hermit. This was a nice spot for me because this shows that some of uh, Clark's somewhat advanced maturity for his age, and a broader worldview of super, uh, for Superman, which is kind of more of a Silver Age or even Bronze Age trait. Sort of the let's... And of course, obviously, Superman's starting to get kinder and gentler in this era to begin with, but this is kind of uh, progressive. It's a progressive mindset, especially for the Golden Age. And I have a note on that, which I'm going to get into. And we also get... Uh, actually, the nice thing is you actually see a detail of the rain letting up in those panels is when the caveman is walking out, which is nice. It didn't just disappear. You see a lighter rainfall. And it's very nice because it's sunny when Macon and Superboy have their conversation. So I, I like that detail. I'm a stickler for detail, and that was a nice one. And, of course, you know, uh, as I mentioned, the sensitivity level in the Golden Age in that era in the 1940s. I'm always amazed when I read Golden Age comics. Um, they're delightfully liberal in the way that they, they treat some of their characters. I mean, you looked at what they did to Tiny. Um, look at Slappy and Roscoe. They pull guns on the kids. 
And it's also, you know, the crooks from last issue, they also pulled guns on kids and they shot one of them. Yes, it was Clark, but this would not fly today. Uh, nor would the professor bonking Superboy on the head. You want proof? Let me give you proof. Let's time travel. I'm going to take you to some comic context and I'll kind of give you a quick movie reference. If we go back to 1999, I wanted to point your attention to a one-shot called Elseworlds 80-Page Giant. I know some of you, your eyebrows perked up. You know exactly what I'm talking about. I bet a lot of you don't have this in your collection. In fact, I can prove it. Because in the book, a baby Clark Kent, who is, of course, just as invulnerable as the Superboy we see here, and for those that think that his powers allow some leeway uh, on the hits he can take, you know, in terms of public reaction, the baby climbs into a microwave. This is young Clark Kent. We know Super Baby's fine. He's freaking Kryptonian. He's invulnerable. He can lift combine threshers and trucks, and he's barely able to walk. He's able to leak tall jungle gyms with a single bound. But because he went in the microwave and apparently turned it on, Everybody crapped their pants. There was such a flack over this one scene out of 80 pages. And we're talking about maybe not, I don't think it was even a full page of panels. But this one scene caused this book to be recalled. So it's very rare, it's hard to find now. All because he got into a microwave. And obviously, we know the context that Superboy's going to be fine. He's a, he's a super baby in this case. We know this. Anybody reading this book, even a child, would read this. And how many children can climb into a microwave to begin with? If they can read, they're not the size that they would need to be to fit into a normal microwave. So, obviously, this just hit everybody in the wrong spots. Now, another, again, another comic reference slash movie. If you look at the first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle live-action movie, uh, Leonardo had his swords, Raphael had his sigh, um, they use their weapons, but if you watch the second one, they're using yo-yos. Um, there's all kinds of wacky ways that they get around using actual weapons because parent groups got so mad at the turtles using their natural weapons that in the second one, they had to tone it down. So, <sighs> Crook's pointing guns at children, especially these two. I mean, we got Tiny and who we call Billy. That'd be a hard sell today in a more sensitive environment. And there were a lot of things that flew in the golden age, the so-called innocent age, like horrible racial stereotypes. For example, Ebony Ivory. He's the spirit's friend. Notice he wasn't even referenced in the movie if you bothered to see the movie. Or he's not really referenced much in the more current spirit comics, like the thing as Darwin Cook was doing. That's because it's horribly racist. Yet, that flew, as did children getting guns pointed at them. And all of this in the golden age... And add to that, Superboy has a sit-down conversation, <laughs> just a little bit of my annoyance, with Professor Macon, while his friends are being held at gunpoint. Ooh, parent groups would flip their lid. And that's where the story kind of went off the rail for me, get, kind of getting back to my critique of the story. Why couldn't the exposition happen back at the cave? Let me give you the sequence I have in mind. Superboy grabs Professor Macon at, right after getting hit, hightails it to rescue his friends, and then the caveman is revealed... And at the end, he explains he was kidnapped. And for that matter, why are the crooks even afraid of Professor Macon? Now, granted, he's brawny, especially for a scientist, but he's been starved for a week. He should be on the verge of passing out. Bark isn't really going to get your strength back. And they're scared of a starved, surprisingly brawny professor with a club, but not the bulletproof kid who just flew through the cave's roof. And while we're at it, Tiny says that Clark may be as tough as Superboy. You know, people make jokes about the glasses being a lame disguise. It's been a trope. But at least it's a disguise, man. Clark even has the spit curl in his civilian mode. Come on, slick that back. And it, really, it doesn't bother me too much uh, as far as the secret identity. We're still in the fun phase of this. Still in the building phases. But, uh, so, maybe... He figured out Clark's secret identity, and that's why we never see Tiny again. Something to ponder. And as for the other features in this issue, Green Arrow and Speedy catch a crook and keep an innocent man from going to jail with the help of mathematician Professor, Professor Million in a return performance by Joe Samichson and Maurice Del Burgo. 
And Crooks used Johnny Quick's sidekick, Tubby Watts, to lure Johnny into a trap, but the speedy one prevails in Reflected Glory, also written by Joe Samichson, with artist Mort Meskin. And Dover and Clover stymie a counterfeiter in Crooked Currency by Harry Boltonoff. And then finally, Aquaman proves to a sea life expert that butterfly fish exist somewhere other than Madagascar. Owen, he saves the professor from a hurricane and stops pearl thieves in the process, which is not too shabby for the Sea King. And this story was entitled The Professor Goes to School, written by Joe Samichson with Louis Kazanov on art. And only the Superboy story has been reprinted to date, and that can be found in the hardcover entitled The Adventures of Superboy, which is highly recommended. This has been Superman Forever Radio, a NatWorld production. You can find the show on iTunes with backlogs of episodes, where you can also leave a review. The show finds its home at supermanforever.com, and is a very proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, which you can find at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. You can friend the show on Facebook at, at facebook.com slash supermanforeverradio and email the show at mail at supermanforever.com. David can be found on Twitter at twitter.com slash superdaveweeder. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not gain profit from the images or related properties belonging to DC Comics or Warner Brothers Entertainment. Superman and all related characters, the distinctive likenesses thereof, are all properties of Warner Brothers Entertainment and DC Entertainment. All music and sound clips used on the show are copyright their respective owners and no infringement is intended. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. 